Right, so we're going to just do a little introduction to ourselves, just kind of so you know how we qualify for doing the things that we do. Um, today, you've, you've just got myself and Nat from Star, which we're going to explain to you as well a little bit more. It's a brand new concept to basically change a culture on how the church mobilizes to address addiction work. And when we say addiction work, I just want to say um, it's anything addiction, compulsive behaviors, or destructive habits. So it's across the board, but we'll probably use the word addiction quite a lot because that's just the first thing. And obviously, hence the, the title. So why don't you introduce yourself, Nat? Tell us who you are, why you're here. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, so my name's uh, yeah, Nat Moody. I'm, a, I'm an accredited Baptist minister, soon to become an ordained uh, Baptist minister, which is a far cry from... Uh, where I grew up. I grew up in South Bristol. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. Welcome. No problems at all. Grew up in South Bristol and uh, I was born to a mentally unwell parent who rejected me at birth. So I've been asking that rhetoric all my life. Who am I? Do I matter? And what is my purpose? And I spent most of my developing early adolescent years seeking validation from things that weren't valid. Uh, massive insecurities and what have you led me to just becoming a class idiot, which then led me on to other attention-seeking behavior. And the Western world context knows that attention-seeking behavior and the approval of other people is very, very important. Otherwise, the socials wouldn't give us the like button. Mm. Wouldn't be there. It wouldn't be there unless we got a massive hit of dopamine every time someone uh, commented or hit that like button. So the uh, the... Uh, that, that took me into a world of drugs and crime and violence and all that sort of behavior. And uh, I've been free for 25 years, 26 years of, uh, of alcohol and, uh, and drugs. And uh, yeah, now most of my ministry simply involves pe asking people, uh, what is your pain? Not what is your addiction, not what is your behavior, what is your pain? If you ask that question, and you allow time to journey out with that, with, with that person, uh, you'll realize that uh, unresolved mm. pain is a gateway to some, uh, you know, some terrible, terrible malpractices of the, of the human condition. Emma. Yeah, well, um, I fell into the trap of addiction at a very early age, about the age of 11. Uh, it started off with eating disorders. Uh, it went through the whole spectrum of different um, addictions. I used to say I could have got addicted to a cheese sandwich if it changed the way I felt. It was all about changing the way I felt yeah. rather than the actual thing. Um, and I even used to, I used to blame everybody and everything for addiction. I my mother was a pharmacist, and my dad worked for Guinness. So I said, if you had the parents I did, you'd end up like I did. My brother became an addict. And um, so at the age of 11, I started feeling different. And it went through the whole spectrum of food disorders. I went to university. I was well educated. And I found alcohol. And funnily enough, I was talking at lunchtime with someone from Cardiff University. I used to go out with like the Welsh rugby team and drink. Um, and and I ha there was a lot of fun attached to it. You know, I had faith at a young age. But the more alcohol consumed my life, the more I... <sighs> you know, got disconnected. But thankfully, you know, God was with me through all of it. And it got to the a real crunch point 15 years ago where I'd finished university, in my wisdom, went and ran nightclubs abroad, which is probably not the best um, life, life choice, you know. And I, I don't blame anything or, you know, what happened in my life, you know, abuse, all that stuff. That's, that's by the by in a way. But there was, I made a lot of bad life choices. Um, and, you know along the way and then it got to the point 15 years ago I was drinking about two liters of vodka a day and just wanting to give up and it got dark I lost all my morals you know ended up on probation drink driving all that sort of stuff and and the last thing I ever imagined 15 years ago when I walked into a rehab well, I say walked I got carried into a rehab um, was that I would ever work within the addiction sector I was one of the few people in this rehab that said I am never ever working with people in addiction please no you know I've lived a life of it it's painful and God has a funny sense of humor and about sort of nine ten years ago I um, it's probably about ten years ago now I started running something called the recovery course which is a Christian course in um, a church context and it just did something to me I describe it like a cross-shaped hole that started being filled and my connection with God grew again 
Um, and to keep, I used to keep my recovery and my faith very separately, but I realized that bringing the two together was something so beautiful. Um, and that's what we have a real passion to see. And, you know, to, in a nutshell, I've, I've worked with many churches. I got involved setting up these addiction courses around the UK, um, seeing, you know, a course one time with 170 people turn up on our doorstep in Bournemouth. Um, so the, the need is there, but I also got this healthy frustration. And I'm going to explain to you how um, STAR came about. Um, this is what we're going to cover today. We're going to talk about STAR, which is the brand new charity, which I would love to see roll out um, around Vineyard Churches as it's, you know, we're just about to launch this year after three years of refining it, testing it, working with 13 churches, one of which Causeway Coast Vineyard over in Coleraine um, and my local church down in Bournemouth, um, Coastline Vineyard, um, amongst other churches. We want to see this roll out and really impact how... Um, churches can be mobilized with the largest volunteer network in the world. If we can just upskill that, that network just a fraction, we'll be able to make a massive difference. And I, I use the analogy, um, back in 2012, I got the absolute privilege by being in recovery, being present and being able to be there with my mum in this hour of need. She had a cardiac arrest in front of me. Um, and she literally was dying. And I only knew a fraction <coughs> tiny fraction of CPR and it was enough to step in and make a difference and I use that analogy a little bit about what we're trying to do here with how we address addiction in our churches we only need to know a tiny fraction to be able to make a big difference in someone's life and often it, I haven't met one church in the hundreds of churches I've had the privilege of being involved with um, over the years that doesn't want to do this doesn't want to help people broken and trapped in addiction, but just don't know how to. And often well-wishing can actually be counterproductive. You know, I've met a lovely home group once who, um, you know, they, they had a lady who was struggling with alcoholism in their home group. And they were quite an affluent home group. Um, and they decided to buy her a car. She couldn't leave her house without drinking neat vodka. You know, so to give her the keys to a car could have been catastrophic. So if we can help people to understand, and I'm not just talking about people like yourselves that clearly have a heart because you're sat here today that want to make a difference. It's about equipping the whole church around things like mental health, how we communicate with people that are struggling in crisis. So basically, from running these recovery courses, we basically have set up this new charity because there was this frustration that was building about how do we mobilize the church to actually step into this massive gap um, that we're seeing um, happen. So about three years ago, we, we started talking about this and STAR has been birthed um, and STAR actually stands for, stands for Steps to Active Recovery. We're, we're going to call it addiction recovery, but we want this charity to be about taking people to a place where they actively make a difference in their community. And also the star is what led people to Jesus. So throughout all the work we do, we want to lead people to Jesus. But we also realize that for many unchurched, broken people, smacking them, you know, in the face with a Bible and trying to preach the gospel to them, even though it's wonderful, it needs to be gentle with many of these folk that are so broken. So it's coming at it from quite a gentle approach and helping them on a journey. So... The vision of Star, we love, you know, the, the Bible verse from Isaiah 61, binding up the brokenhearted and setting captives free. I mean, for me, my part bench was actually my sofa in a beautiful, beautiful home. It does, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate. It's not just what we, you know, technically perceive of what addiction is. Um, but we want to really, through our church communities, rebuild the ancient like ruins and restore places long devastated. Communities are devastated by addiction. You know, it is a massive, massive crisis. Um, just before the pandemic, I was doing some research and I found this amazing article entitled The Pandemic of Addiction. I'd never really heard the word pandemic used. Now it's almost like every other word, you know. And, um, and literally it said in that article that with addiction, you know, the key factor in addiction is isolation and loneliness. So you have a pandemic that was going on around addiction, toppled with the pandemic we've just been through. A pandemic where every single addiction has come to the surface. You know, you look at the beginning. I've been free of eating disorders for over 20 years. The minute I started being told that I might not be able to get food, I could feel 
the anxiety coming, you know. I'd love to be able to stand here and say, God has completely set me free of the triggers and all the things. That's not my reality. I have met people that has happened. They've walked into a church and boom, never again. And I'm like, wow, you know, but it's not my story, you know. But the thing is, we are living in a world where we, you know, are programmed to be addicted to things, like Nat said about the dopamine hits. So basically, this charity has been set up to, and these are the objectives, and there is some um, information about which you can take some stuff away. It's got more about what we do. So this is more of a bit of a taster session. And if you are really interested to get this in your churches, contact us. We'll work with you. It's so personal that we want to journey with you to do this. Um, but we want to give churches the confidence to deliver recovery ministries safely meaning churches can effectively help those affected by addiction. And we want to equip and support churches to what we call become star approved. So if you walked into a star approved church anywhere around the whole country, you would know you're walking into somewhere that's met this level of training and support of their teams so that they can confidently help people in addiction. It's a bit like we described it. We were saying we, we stayed in a bit of a NAF hotel last night, my choice. Um, you know, <laughs> Nat's room was awful because it overlooked the entrance. But if you walk into a Premier Inn, you know what you're going to get, roughly, don't you, wherever you are around the country. A bit like this, if you walked into a Star Approved Church, you know that it meets that level of, you know, training, support, and the teams are confident to do this. So it means that more people can be helped. Um, we want to offer a unified community approach which helps break down fear and stigma and to offer a clear standard of support which is nationally recognised for those wishing to access recovery services. So that's a little bit about what STAR is. And I love, you know, I, I did a preach down in my church and, you know, obviously I, I would use this regardless of it being to a group of amazing vineyard leaders, but, um, you know, when God calls you to an extraordinary task, he provides extraordinary resources. And I love that, which um, John quoted, because we can do so much, you know, in what we're doing here. So I'm going to hand over to Nat, who's going to tell you a little bit more about what addiction is. And then we're going to address some of the current addiction issues, share some stories and some practical help. Yeah, I think one of the key aspects that we want to help and want to deliver is just to help, just to help dismantle the whole stigmatism and the whole idealism around the word uh, addiction, you know, in the same way that my parents' generation have a different connotation to the word mental health. They probably have a lot more associated fear and sort of shunning and someone rocking in the corner type approach as where we, you know, we, we've, we've moved on from that in society. We have a lot more uh, inclusive and, and gentle and kinder understanding of that. But I don't think, I don't think we're there <clears throat> with the word addiction. I don't think we're there. Maybe we still think of the guy on the park bench with the tenant super or the smackhead outside the boots. I, I don't know, but I still I still think we're still away we're still away from the word addiction. And there's there's two things that that keep that there. That number one, uh, addiction keeps someone cloaked in shame. I absolutely riddled and just drenched and filth stained and guilt in shame. And if we, can't, if we can't have those open and safe conversations in church where even on our best day we fail to live up to the principles of the Christ we serve on any given day, our, our role on every day is to get up and attain the full character of Christ alive and at work in us. Anyone managed it? So far, anyone? Great. So on our best days we fail to do that in any way. So we should, we should understand grace. And not mercy, that, we didn't deserve that, but we understand grace. So if we're not, if we're not providing safe uh, dismantling of the language and of the association around addiction, because addiction isn't the problem, it's the outwork behavior of the underlying manifesting issue. So however someone is coping, overeating, undereating, snorting, you, you name it, Clicking away on Amazon. It's it's the same, it's the same issue. So it is a it is a mental health issue, but it's a mental health issue now that, as we say, has become just boom 
And we knew that there was isolated and marginalized people before the pandemic. That just shone a 500 watt prison bulb onto the problem. And actually the churches have got two response now to go la 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 and just turn the volume up to the right or say actually how do we do this and how do we do this well? Let's have a look at King David. King David, a man after God's own heart. That's how he's described, by the way. He made it into the book of the Bible, by the way. A huge section. A man after God's own heart. Uh, so far, we've got sexual sin, lust, greed, power. Ooh. Oh, those are the other parts of King David that we like to just sort of just brush over and forget, forget never happened, but they did. And if you read Psalm 51, that's his open confession. I certainly wouldn't want any of my open confessions to make it into the Bible or any print or even in a text. Noah used alcohol as an ineffective coping mechanism. Elijah, a suicidal, depressed prophet. Jeremiah lived and battled with isolation, loneliness, and depression. We could character profile any figure, any human figure in the Bible and see the fallible nature of the human condition. Yeah. Great. So I've talked briefly about the current sort of addiction issues um, that we're facing post-pandemic or sort of still kind of coming out of the pandemic. Um, when I said earlier about, you know, we talk about, we stereoty stereotypically think about alcohol and drugs um, but there is, you know, it's so across the board, different things. And I want to share with you a few stories of something that really hit my heart uh, many years ago when I was invited to watch a recovery course running before I started, you know, setting them up around the country. And I remember going up to London to a big church up there and they were running it. And I just went up and there was a lovely, you know, group of men and women, but for the purpose of some of the courses, we would separate the men and women into groups. Um, and I got invited to sit with this uh, group of ladies, and most of them were very similar age to me. Uh, but there was one little old lady in the group, and I thought she must be someone's grandmother. You know, she literally looked like my nan, my late nan. And um, we sat in the group, and just for identification purposes, everyone was saying what, what had brought them to that, that course. And most of the girls and sort of women, you know, I say girls, I'm 42, 43. Um, you know, most of the women um, were saying that they were addicted to crack cocaine, alcohol, you know, heroin, all that sort of stuff. And it got to this little old lady, and I thought she passed, and she didn't. And she looked straight at me, and I remember it so clearly. And she said, Emma, I've got this habit. And I could suddenly see this pain. It touches me. I could see this pain in this woman's face. And, and I literally sort of said, well, what, what is it? And she said, well, it's the first thing I do in the morning and the last thing I do at night. I spend all my money on it. She'd been married to her husband for 50 years. And he was thinking of divorcing her because of it. And, and literally, she was just absolutely broken. And I said, well, what is it? I was literally out of my chair by this point. Like, what is it? What is it? And she was like, I'm addicted to cross-stitch. You know, and I was like, cross-stitch, that's like knitting. That's something my nan used to do. And I was like, what? You know, laughed at her. And then I realised, oh my gosh, I looked at her face. And I'm not joking, she was going through as much pain as when I used to drink two litres of vodka a day and want to die. But, you know, she could remember everything. I, you know, the alcohol blocked out the feelings for me. It didn't for her. You know, and this woman, it was her waking thought of when could she do this? Um, and another guy, one time we were running a course um, in Bournemouth and this man brought his wife who was struggling with alcohol. Um, and basically, you know, he brought her along and said, could I sit at the back and just, you know, just so I understand what's happening so I can talk to her in the week. We said, yeah, of course. You know, that's absolutely fine. Um, he sat at the back and after about two or three weeks, he came up to us and said, do you mind if I join the men's group? I was like, well, you kind of have to have had some sort of thing, you know. Um, and bless him, he said, well, I, I actually realised that I have. And he, you're gonna, he said, you're going to laugh at this. And I thought, nothing makes me laugh now after the things I've seen. And he said, I'm addicted to biting my nails. And I said, well, th yeah, that's quite an unhealthy habit, but it's not, you know, I wouldn't necessarily... But then he went, no, no, seriously, you don't know what this has taken me to. And he had got married to his Christian girlfriend. They got married and went away on honeymoon about six months before we met them. And he said that, 
he went on honeymoon and it absolutely ruined his time because all he could think about was where could he go to bite his nails in private because he didn't want to show his newlywed wife what he does. You know, so this, I'm just trying to challenge our thinking slightly around this because it is across the board. They say that between 80 and 90% of people, so look at the group we have here, you know, 80 to 90% of people have a destructive behaviour, compulsive behaviour or habit or as full on as an addiction that if they were free of, they would be happier. You know, so actually people that don't have something that they go to as a form of self-soothing, it's about 80 to 90% of people, um, a report that I'd found, I can get you the details of that, said that have a destructive behaviour in their life um, in, in regards to habits or addictions. If they were free of, they'd be happier. So actually, we're, if you haven't got that, you would be classed as being in the minority. You know, so I'd, I'd, I like to try and challenge how we think about these things because... I was at the last Vineyard Leaders Conference and I got to speak to John Mark Comer. We had a chat after. Um, and in his book, The Ruthless and Elimination of Hurry, you know, we we're talking about sort of Facebook addiction and things like that. And he made, he's got this quote in his book. He put, the fact that we have access to all kinds of technology that allows us and our young people to talk face to face with friends across the world and access all kinds of information is beautiful. But this doesn't take away from the fact that the phone has been designed not as a tool, but as an instrument to steal our attention and addict us to it. And that we are programmed to be addicted. You take away your mobile phones, not necessarily all of you, but some, you'll feel that pang of, Ugh! you know, we, we, we end up being so drawn into it. You know, I tried it once. Yeah, I tried it once, so I went on holiday, and I came back, I, I literally, the, the first day I thought, I'm turning off all my social media, I'm, you know, and for about three days, I, at one point, I had to physically sit on my hands to stop me going to my phone, I didn't realise how much that, that thing is like the pull, like the drink, like the gambling, like the pornography, you know, it's, it's a very toxic culture we're in, um, so I just wanted to show you that. I'm going to show you just a few statistics. Just, I'm not a great statistic person, but I know many of my friends are, and I think it's important to throw some in. Um, this is to do with the pandemic. Um, it's from the Forward Trust, um, which is a YouGov um, research document. For those who identified as being in recovery from addictive behaviour pre-pandemic, 37% reported a relapse or reoccurrence of their addictive behaviour during a year of lockdowns and restrictions. And that's a huge amount. And actually, I did a little bit more delving into this. Um, that is based on people that are over a year free of their addictions. You know, um, the reality is a lot of people don't make it to a year in the general climate. But this is for people over a year. 37%. It's a huge figure. I've known people that are 20, 30 years free of addiction. And through the pandemic, it just threw them. Um, you know, and there has been times, even in my own journey in recovery, 15 years, that pandemic was tough. Um, isolation, my head, you know, went and things. Um, so to be vigilant and, and I'm very open and honest about that. Um, it's sustained high from a sustained high from 2020, just indicating the, the profound impact that this has had over the last couple of years. So... Second statistic, the number of drug-related deaths recorded in England and Wales in 2020 was the highest ever recorded, actually, since the records began in 1993. And I don't know if anyone knows, but the, the UK is actually known as the drug capital of Europe. Um, you know, we are living in a place where addiction is absolutely rife. And we can, like Nat said, we can turn a blind eye but the more, it's a bit like when you're looking for a house, you start seeing all the for sale signs, you know. When you start working in this, you see that it is everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Um, alcohol liver deaths increased by 21% during the first year of the pandemic. That's massive because it usually takes several years to actually show an impact like that. So imagine what it probably is now. We haven't got the statistics yet to show. Um, but a lot of people found they were drinking a, a profound amount more during um, lockdown. Um, and obviously the increase in mental health, like you said, you know, now we're living in that fear-based climate and fear, pain are big catalysts to addiction. 
And this is um, this was taken last year. This statistic: sixty-four percent of people in the UK know someone with an addiction. This affects so many, and we're not just talking about people in addiction. We're talking about the family, the friends, the colleagues, the people impacted by this. And that is something that I'm incredibly passionate to see supported. Um, so we're going to just share with you a few little stories about people that we've worked with. Um, we'll change the names. Um, just to protect their sort of identity. But over to you, Nat. Do you want to explain a few things? Yeah, I will. But just to also then just come on the back of what you were saying there as well, Emma, in terms of, you know, what classes as a normality because, you know, legalised dealers during the pandemic were your Ocado drivers and your Tesco.com drivers because if you didn't want the shame of putting X, Y and Z on the conveyor belt and having to face the cashier and clerk you could just and clerk you could just put that in your basket and uh, the dealer would bring that to your door and my post lady became my best friend during the pandemic it. sometimes they come and put it in your fridge so that's you know it's and and this is where we're trying to sort of just just dismantle the whole idealism again around around behaviors because as i say there's things that we do there's things that we do, there's things that I do that I knew that if I, if I had a better grip on, there'd be parts of my life that would be much, much better managed. We kind of get away, it's not just the alcoholic, it's not just the drug addict, it's not just the porn freak, it's not just the gambler. The highest gambling demographic in the UK today is, uh, is wealthier house mums who have a cleaner and what have you. So they open up the bottle of Chardonnay at 10 a.m., they get on their iPad and they start playing Foxy Bingo. That's the, that's the largest demographic of gamblers, gamblers in the UK today, followed, by, followed secondly by young men betting on sports. Women playing bingo is a much higher demographic than it is. And you just kind of go, wow, I never, I never thought of it like that. Then of course all the morning TV programs are sponsored by Foxy Bingo, and uh, so of course, of course they're going to be the highest. They're just getting fed all that information. Exactly, exactly. It's just not visible, and that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, so this is. This is just a way of just kind of saying, let's just, let's just shine a bit of a light on that, but let's do that in a way that, that gives kingdom diligence, really. You know, let's, let's just love on people, but let's love on people sensibly. Let me tell you about Kevin. Kevin, I met on, the rec on, on one of the courses, and Kevin went through a hard time, and I said, Kevin, come and stay with, come and stay with us. I've got a young family. Um, and I said, yeah, just come and stay with us and we'll just love on you. I'm a former criminal, former sort of violent lunatic, so I thought, you know, I'm safe enough, safe enough in my house. You might be able to break in, but breaking out would be the problem. That's, that's, that's where you're, you're going to get unstuck, Kevin. So I said, look, just come on, come and live with us and just love on us. And, you know, we used to tuck this guy into bed at night and just kiss him on the forehead and just pray with him and just, just love on him, a, a guy dealing with uh, alcohol problems and cocaine. And, um, and the long and the short of it, you know, he stole from us. He, you know, he, he went through our cupboards and he, and he stole from us and uh, he took our car and he smashed our car up and then just hid even more in shame. And then we found him. And when we found him, we just put our arms around him and we just hugged him and just said, it's, it's okay. It's not okay. They're there going, peace, my friend. Uh, and you still owe us a debt, and you will pay that debt to us. Somehow, somewhere, you'll pay that debt to us. Um, <clears throat> and this is where we kind of come in with the reality of, like, good intentions. Education versus good intention. Uh, you know, he, I mean, he, he would have stole from us because like, no, I would have never given him money. <laughs> I wouldn't have given him money in that situation, but... You know, what have, I, what have I learned from that situation? I've learned that A, I have a heart for the broken, and B, I work with professional mini players. You know, that, that, it neither makes me wrong in that context or makes his behavior any better in that context either. So uh, that's Kevin. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. And this, not, you know, Nat and his family are very open to welcoming people into their home. You know, I live on my own being single, I wouldn't do that. But it's, you know, this is the beautiful thing. We're creating a ministry where we can talk about what your own personal boundary is around that sort of stuff. And I know how much it broke you when that happened with Kevin. 
Um, you know, I wanted to share with you a little story about a lad called Josh, and actually he has allowed me to use his name. Um, he came to a recovery course that we are running. We're going to tell you a bit about the Star Life course in a minute, which is a practical thing that we offer. Um, but he turned up, and again, you know, I, I get challenged all the time about my preconceptions. My goodness, I've lived through addiction for like, you know, so many years, yet things happen and it just changes how I how I perceive things and think about stuff. And it, this guy walked into one of the big courses we were running, and he was physically grey. He literally was grey, skinny. My head, straight away, oh, must be, you know, class A drugs. You know, that's how my head went straight away. Anyway, I, I saw Josh sort of get involved with one of the groups, and bit by bit, you know, he couldn't look up at the time. And over the weeks, we started to see his eyes, you know. He'd start to look up, he'd start to smile, he'd start to talk. By the end of this, at the time, we were involved with a 16-week course. By the end, he'd started talking in his group, and I went up to him towards the end, and I said, you know, can I ask a little about your story, you know, because you look like a completely different person in, in the space of these couple of months. And... And he told me that he was addicted to pornography. He was only 19, but pornography had gripped him so much that the physicality of what that had done to him, it wasn't just his spirit, it was everything of how he looked. Um, and he actually, um, it was beautiful because his mum had brought him along that first day. And I remember at the time, the mother, you know, we welcomed Josh in, but there was then the family member. And she just turned around and went, walked away. All we could offer her was a coffee at the time, you know, and welcomed her back in. And, and funnily enough, actually, you know, my mother I mentioned about earlier, the cardiac arrest, the good news is she survived it. Um, and she, at the time, was helping with some of the teas and coffees on this course, um, not long after she'd had this cardiac arrest. And I turned around to her. I said, Mum, that's just broken my heart. You know, I'm a, you know. And she said, she was like, well, what are we going to do, Emma? I said, you need to write a program, you know, to help these people that are affected by addiction, you know. And being a pharmacist and everything with her background, she did. She wrote it. And we've actually got that to offer within the STAR um, charity now, which is just being finalized. But it's um, basically a program, not so much a course, more of an ongoing program that people can access and get that help. Because just like people in recovery or on an addiction path, Family, friends, and colleagues, they also need to recover. You know, but the actual denial of knowing that they need to recover is sometimes harder to admit because it's more ingrained. You know, they've lived many, many years carrying people. But anyway, this woman, Josh's mum, ended up accessing some support. Um, and then the family came together. Josh now is in London in acting school. You know, and we love that. You know, he's on fire. This young man that had nothing to live for. You know, we get... That's the beautiful thing. And I'm not saying... That it's a heartbreaking ministry, I'll be completely honest. I remember a time, probably about four years ago, and in the space of two months, I knew nine people that died. And it was just relentless. And I never want to get cold to feeling that, and it was painful. Um, and, it, you know, I question how does that happen? But also we do get to see lives completely changed and saved, and that's the beautiful thing about this messy, hard ministry. It's, you know, um, so, yeah. So, Nat, you're going to tell us some practical ways. Yeah, just to mention again as well, because obviously within the, within the church, you know, one of the, the taboos is fear and stigma and the unknown, and then there's taboos of the taboos because studies in the States went out and, uh, and it, it described that the sexual addictions, you know, pornography, uh, sexualized WhatsApp groups, sexualized chat rooms and that, the usage, the statistical figures of usage were the same inside the church as they were outside of the church. And I, you know, I don't know, when, when you hear that kind of information, do you sound surprised? Do you sound horrified? Do you want to just think, I wish this guy would stop talking about sexual addiction and get onto something else? La, 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 we're, we're a pure bunch. But it's, it's, about, it's about addressing that. It's about addressing that safely and well. I spoke to one of the Baptist Union regional ministers and said, uh, said if you as a, as a Baptist minister that came to me and said you had a problem with sexual sin five years ago, we'd have had no choice but to sack you there on the spot. Well, God bless you. That's that's really kind. What I'll do is I'll just take. Aye. No, no. You know, but so again, how do we how do we create safety? 
safety to talk about to talk talk about you know sec sexual sin which again just using that that terminology sounds so shame-filled well think so, about john um he's a friend of yeah, ours and yeah, he's yeah. happy for us to say you know yeah. share details he was a minister like leading a church down in pool and you know he got um got caught um for acting out um sort of you know sexually and he lost everything his church his wife left him you name it, but he's he's actually come on courses now, and now he gives back and helps, and actually, you know, is really encouraging um, leaders to come forward. But the shame attached when you're pastoring a flock of people to actually then say, hey, you know, I, I've got my own stuff going on. It's incredibly hard, and we want to kind of break down the walls of how we talk about addiction so that anyone anywhere can access this stuff. Yeah, and access it well, and access it safely, uh, and that's that's the that's yeah. the the key thing there. You know, practical help in how to spot signs of addiction when it's very hard because uh, one of the primary things of addiction is to live in denial uh, to yourself. First of all, you don't want to admit anything to yourself. So to live in denial means you're going to be very good at camouflaging, covering up the way that you act behave and response if you've if you've grown up in church by the way today if you're here and you've grown up in church you know exactly how to behave this morning when we were in morning worship service no matter how you feel you know exactly the right point <laughs> and as long as someone from the outside sees that right or even you want two pieces of chocolate cake <laughs> but as long as someone as, someone is, as long as someone's looking at that, they're not looking at the motive underneath it. Because in a room of a thousand people with your hand up in the air, you fit in by proxy. You fit in by association. doesn't matter what's going on in the inside. On the outside, you can act that way. So it's very, very hard to kind of spot some of the, some of the you know, with the secretive behavior, lying behavior, financial unpredictability behavior, changes in social group, new and unusual friends. Mm. Addiction is a neuropsychological disorder. And unless you're a trained practitioner, which <laughs> it's going to be very, very hard to, to find that and to, to work with that. But what we're, what we're really just trying to over-egg here is, is creating places where shame and guilt can be removed, mm -hmm. um, where condemnation and consequence can be, can be managed and worked through. You know, we're all, we're all fallible, every single one of us, and uh, we're all accountable. Uh, we just don't like to admit that. We don't, we certainly, I'm, I'm accountable right up until the point where somebody asks me something personal. And then, then all of a sudden, I'm back in denial. Uh, and, and so for us, we're saying, how can we, how can we support you as church communities to just uh, vocalise this kind of open conversation? It's funny because I wasn't, it's not in my notes, but that reminded me of, you know, the fact that addiction is everywhere, you know, and I used to live next door to a vicar um, and it was a lovely vicarage and I would always, I was in my drinking days, you know, but I would always be the one that said I'd feed his cat when he went on holiday because that vicar was a, you know, he bang into alcohol, the best seller ever. Um, and I used to go around and I, I remember I used to fill up his red wine with Rhymbina. <laughs> and he never knew. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to share that with you because, you know, <laughs> addiction's everywhere, you know, and I'm, I still have a sense of humour around all that stuff. Um, anyway, we're going to tell you a little bit about a part of the uh, um, STAR is that we want to equip churches to get to this level of competence, uh, well, competence in knowledge um, and in collaboration so that actually they can then deliver things on the ground for people in addiction so it's a little bit like backtracking you know really getting people up to a level um, and it's all described in the the book in the back how we do that we go we take people on what we call a star approval journey um, and that is actually free to churches to do we asked for a suggested donation we worked out how much that costs for the overheads but if a church can't afford it that is not a stumbling block we want to see as many churches star approved around the country so that you can walk in to a star-approved church anywhere in the UK and know that it's got that level of competency. And then the, the next session, like the next step is membership. 
Um, and that then we give like things like a helpline so that volunteers can access that rather than necessarily having to put pressure on their church leadership teams. They have the Star Life course training, which we're going to explain to you what the Star Life course is. So there's lots of different things like that. And it's all a minimal charge. And I hate to talk about money, but that's the reality um, that we live in. But it's all detailed in there um, how people can actually go on this journey with us. Um, so we, Nat's going to explain to you, myself, Nat, and a gentleman called Jules basically saw this need to write a brand new recovery course, which we um, wrote last year, and it has been running. We've run two national online recovery courses, and it's been in five churches already running, so yeah. you can yeah. explain it more, Nat. Yeah, and I've just checked in. We've got 20 minutes left, so we're going to run through this because we want to make sure we give you guys plenty of interactive time yeah. to uh, to ask questions. So what is what is the course about? It is it is a journey where we meet someone and uh, the first thing we we ask them to simply do is you know is do you want to step into the light? Because uh, what we like to do as people is we like to live with one foot in the shadows and one foot in the light. And we like to completely think that we can just exist that way and uh, that that's great. Uh, the the reality of that, of course, is is it's impossible. You cannot you cannot live with one foot in in the light and one foot in the dark and sustain sustain that on for for very long. So we we look at we look at denial. We look at choices. We look at surrender. Uh, I gave God my heart back in 1993. In most days, I've been asking for most of it back. And I've been asking for most of the reign of that back as well. Because actually what we, what we like to do is we like to give God the bits that we want to give God control of. But there's the inner sanctum inside the inner sanctum that we're so, we're so shame-filled and guilt-filled and sad and secretive and in denial about it that actually we don't want to give that to God. So we allow people to shine, shine lights onto inner rooms that they haven't quite yet given their access to God for. And then we take people down the pit. Because when they feel safe, they've got to abseil down and, and trudge around in some of that slime and in some of that crud and some of that sed, uh, sediment and, and deal with some of those resentments and those unresolved issues. Trauma, trauma basically is just unresolved pain. That's, that's what trauma played out is. And then we look at some tools that come out of that. We look at, we look at confession. We look at making amends. We look at rewiring. If someone came in to change the wiring in your house, they wouldn't put the new wiring loom next to the old wiring loom. They'd have to take the old wiring loom out before they put the new wiring loom in. So we think, well, how do we, how do we act? How do we behave? How do we respond? Is there a biblical element? Is there a physical element? And is there an emotional element? Yes, yes, yes. So that's what, that's what the course is, to, is designed to do. We go through the 12 steps and the principles. The 12 steps were, were I believe, heaven breathed in the 1930s to two Baptist ministers. And, um, you know, the Porsche 911 wouldn't look better with a second steering wheel. There's some things that are just done right in the first place, and it looks great. And this, those 12 steps were, were kingdom-breathed, and they were, they were heaven-breathed, and they, they, they asserted the human condition for absolutely everybody. Absolutely everybody. And we've just added some, some yeah, mind element, uh, and spiritual element, and we just, we're, yeah, we're about whole person, Sorry, I'm waffling. You don't, don't, don't ask a preacher and someone who's passionate about something to go into a way just waffle, waffle, carry on. And one thing we'll say is that we called it a life course rather than a yeah. recovery course because the words that we use around addiction and destructive habits are so important. Yeah. Um, we don't want to, like, um, I, for many years going to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've called myself an alcoholic. I don't want to call myself an alcoholic anymore. I will in the purpose of these meetings just for identification um, but actually, there's a part in the course that actually challenges how we speak about ourselves. You know, I'm a person that has struggled with alcohol. I'm not an alcoholic, you know. So I, I want to say that as well. So that's, there's elements like this in the course that we are... We want this to be modern. We want to challenge people about how we actually do this because there's, there's some great courses out there, don't get me wrong, but we felt there was a need to do something slightly more modern, easier to run, 12 weeks rather than some of the courses are much longer... Um, and we've had a specialist um, team package it all up, so it's really 
I would have done it 15 years ago. <laughs> uh, we're also literally about to roll out the life support group, which I mentioned, which is a program to help people affected by addiction. So that is going to be a key part. We're also looking into prison work. We're talking with Youth for Christ as well about adopt, you know, adapting a youth program. So there's a lot of developments coming. You know, we've been testing this for three years, so it's it's that fledgling stage, but I see it being incredibly exciting as we go forward. The, the life support group runs alongside the life course. It really complements it because when you see a person with the, the difficulty um, working alongside a family member or somebody, it's just beautiful, the sort of transition of that. So that will be available probably in the next sort of three or four months as well, which is going to be really exciting. <coughs> Sorry. So how you can, how to help, basically, if you want to get involved in becoming a star community or a star church, you could either do it as a church on their own or you could do it within a network of churches in your community. We have the two options. We love the community approach. We're all about collaboration. You know, we don't want to, you know, do what's already being done. We want to bring people together um, and we want to basically upskill them. Um, and help them to develop in confidence. We offer things included, which you'll see in the book at the back, which you're welcome to have. But we, we include things like, you know, basic addiction awareness training. We have an element about mental health, about how to actually run groups, um, welcome training. We often overlook how we actually welcome people. We might have a hospitality team, but actually how do we address when someone's in crisis? You know, someone gave me a really lovely little thing. You know, when someone's crying, um, and in a real mess, let them cry, you know, and afterwards ask them to repeat what they said. Half the time they won't know, but if they do, they can articulate it and then they get more clarity around that situation. So it's little tools like that that really help um, when working with people that are upset in pain in addiction. Um, so that basically is what we wanted to deliver to you today, just to give you that snippet. And if this stuff really does, um, you know, matter to you and you feel that this is something that you want to go on a bit more of a journey about, then we'd just love to do that with you. You know, we make a bespoke package based on your church, your community. Um, we're not experts. We just happen to feel that we're called into this and want to, yeah, just journey with churches to come into it. So we're going to like open the floor up to question and answers. I'll bring the microphone to you if you don't mind it being recorded. If you don't want it to be recorded, just say if it's a personal thing. Um, but just to like, make you aware that this is a recorded session. So I saw your hand go up. Thanks very much. Um, I'm, my name is Andrew. Um, I don't think I've got an addiction as such, but family members do. And I'm, uh, I've served in the army for years and there's lots of PTSD and addiction issues. And we've just moved into a new church plant up in Catterick. So um, this could really be a way forward. I'm also part of Lead City Mission. And the question is, do you work with city missions? And how does that work? Is there a, do you work primarily to the city mission or do you work with churches within the city mission? Thank you. Yes, yes. And what we'd love to do is actually raise up sort of like, you know, places like the city mission areas to be star approved and then they can potentially either deliver it or they can recommend it to the churches in their locality. So we can work with them in that sense. Thank you. And uh, yeah, microphones work a lot better when you turn them on. <laughs> That's a bit weird having a conversation. Um, Steve from London. What's the difference between this and recovery, uh, Kintsugi, overcomers in the kind of Christian world, but also with NA and AA and SA? What, what are some of the differences? And um, how much training do you give facilitators? There's some amazing organizations out there. The 12-step fellowships are great. They offer, uh, obviously, groups um, where people come. Um, you've got Kinzuki Hope, which are brilliant. You've got the sort of mental health elements as well. What we're doing is just it's slightly different in that we are almost backtracking so that we're equipping people up to a level that's a nationally recognized level of... Um, a bit like if you know dementia-friendly churches, you walk into a dementia-friendly church and you know that it meets that criteria of safety. 
um, up to a level. So it's got quality assurance with it. Um, and then we offer the extra things like the courses that are very specific to addiction. There's some great stuff, but it's very much centered around mental health at the moment. Um, so that's kind of, does that answer your question enough? You sure? We could maybe chat a bit more if you like, because, um, yeah. Anyone else? Oh, the facilitators, yes. It's a whole package um, which we offer then as part of the STAR approval. It's um, called facilitator training. So we have a concept design specialist that's um, very specialised in developing packages that we um, offer. And then we can come alongside and actually either run it in person um, or help churches to run it. We'd ask for, in a church, to have one or two star core team within that church. It doesn't have to be actual staff. It could be, you know, uh, volunteers that are ready to take on the mantle of leading star within their church. Um, and then we would basically work really closely with them in order to get this to their volunteer teams. But the facilitator training is really... It, it's looking at how we run groups and run them well because often we can go in and, and try and straight away just jump into group settings. But actually, again, this is all about backtracking and getting the foundations right so that we can make a difference. And with the life course, we run specific life course training that also adds about how to facilitate groups both online and in person because of the changing climate that we see. Is that right? Sometimes it's very hard to talk to people about it because he's well known to a lot of my friends and to, a, you know, I don't want them to judge him. And I know they do judge him. They won't judge him. And is there a sort of a support organisation for people like me that are trying to, um, I mean, I love him to bits. I hate what he's doing. And I, I hate the thought that he might get back to that place again. And I don't know what to do. I pray for him, and I know that is the best gift I can give for him. But in a practical sense, you know, I know that until he actually realises, and he realised it with the ketamine, I never knew anything about ketamine except he gave it to horses until, you know, until it... And it just, it's, you know, when you... I've been phoning at the deep end and I really didn't know where to look for help. Well, this is exactly, there's a need to get this out around the country, especially the life support programme at the moment. You know, there's a, there's only what, we're only running it down in Bournemouth. Um, but I would say in the meantime, there's an amazing um, organisation linked to the fellowships, but called Families Anonymous, um, which is a great support. And Whereas things like um, Al-Anon is purely for families of alcoholics, Families Anonymous, you can go and talk about a person's drug addiction as well, or to be honest, any addiction. So that is my go-to that I would say for anyone at the moment. Um, and they do follow the 12-step program, so it does draw in the spiritual element, maybe not as heavily um, around the Christian side as we do. Um, but I can, you know... Maybe you can speak to some people and we could set up a group in your area, you know, um, and start it. You could actually, you could be my first pilot of it in a different area. If you know people or maybe your church that would support that. I'm always quite creative and I'd work with you in that. Maybe it's the reason that you're sitting there today. 
but there is hope, you know, but it's actually about you getting the hope, the support you need, because it's, we teach things like we're powerless over the individual. You can hear it. Well, can, we, can I pray with you at the end? Anyone else that wants to support you? Yeah, you know, there's, there's a fable and it says it takes uh, a village to raise a child, but it takes a community to help heal brokenness and pain. And uh, that's simply what we want to help provide and facilitate for churches that actually this, is, uh, this isn't for AN in the church or, you know, this is, this is, this is a church problem. This is, this is, this is real. You know, to be even just to have the freedom to hold a microphone and say that to a bunch of church leaders is is, is empowering and is and is liberating and it's raw and it's honest and we thank you for your tears and mm -hmm. we we feel those tears and there's a there's a lot more tears that need to be shed over over this this true pandemic true pandemic and it is it's it's a, it's a true global pandemic you know. Any other questions? Oh, I'll come to you after. Is that what? I'll, I'll take this one a minute. Yeah, you go. I'm getting <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Not very good with this. I used to not be good at driving as well. I lost my license twice. <laughs> Great. Thank you uh, for what you've shared. What sort of impact have you seen from the course? What uh, sort of percentage uh, of change do you see? Uh, you, yeah. I'm going to get something, which you are very, very welcome to take. I've actually designed an impact report, <laughs> um, which is the first one we've done for the charity. But in there, it gives you all the sort of statistics of what we've seen working with these amazing 13 churches over the last two, three years. Um, so, for example, with the 13 churches, the, the sort of ladder outcomes that we are trying to gauge um, to hopefully increase by working with them, it, like I mentioned, is confidence, knowledge, and collaboration. So confidence, we saw increase by 60%, knowledge by 43%, and collaboration by 18%. Or Because we work with two big church communities, they were already collaborating, so I think that's why that one's lower. And there were 49 volunteers trained in amongst um, that specific um, team. With the life course from running that, I mean, I'll be honest, our, the last statistic just broke me, but um, we've seen 195 people register online, which is unheard of. Um, and that was just for the first one that we ran, bearing in mind it had never been run before. 33 volunteers were trained in that first course. We had six groups running it in person. So a way that you can do it, and this is the exciting thing, is we run it nationally online twice a year, um, you know, by ourselves. We've had churches tap into that, which again saves them on resources yeah. because they can just join in online, have their own breakout group or just, you know, join for the beginning part and then have their group bits in person. So they've been able to almost like journey with a much wider team while being supported to run it in an in-person setting. And also people can come and watch it running online so they get a flavour and a taste for it ready for when they want to roll it out. Um, we saw 53% of guests on that first course say that they were free of their addiction for three or more months. Bearing in mind that was only running for three months, which is crazy. Um, but this one, which I've got goosebumps, our guests' connection said 100% of them said that their spirituality grew. And for me, that was, I was doing this at two in the morning one day a few months ago, and I was on my floor just crying because ultimately we can help people set, get free of addiction. That isn't the easy part, but that is a very practical step. But actually when people find that hope in him, that is when their recovery changes. You know, that was for like my, my journey and I've seen it for countless people. That's when that true freedom that we only dream about is possible. Um, and that's what we want to get to everybody, really. I realise that it's three o'clock and uh, we need to be time sensitive, but we also want to be room sensitive to, to not leaving here or, or not having your questions unanswered as well. So how do we steer that one? Can we uh, just stay if anyone wants to talk yeah, to us? You can bring people together if we need to. Yes. There will be another seminar coming in at three. 
3.30. Oh. Okay. You're Great. free. Great. Can I just pray before we go? <laughs> Can I just ask this man to pray before we go? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is kingdom. This is about your business. Jesus, you were about eyeball to eyeball with people. And there's nobody's eyes that you looked in that you thought, no, nah, I can't do that. Father, may we see this through heaven's lens. May we act wisely. Stand firm against the work of the enemy in this. Take back ground within people's minds and hearts where he thinks he's won. Yeah. And will you help us, Father? Will you help us to just love the one that's put in front of us? And to repeat that over and over until we stand in glory with a line of people that are there because of the faithfulness you placed on our heart. Amen. 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 Go in peace.